Awareness of forced labor in global supply chains is ramping up, but apparel and footwear companies aren't doing enough to eradicate it. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Editor-in-Chief of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. Some of the biggest names in fashion failed miserably in the latest apparel and footwear benchmark study by Know the Chain, a partnership of NGOs that serves as an information resource about forced labor in global supply chains. Among 65 of the world's largest apparel and footwear companies, the average score measuring progress toward the elimination of forced labor was just 21 out of 100. Even the best performer, Lululemon, scored only a 63. So why is the fashion industry dragging its feet on this issue, even as new regulations are emerging to penalize companies that rely on forced labor to manufacture their products? On this episode, we examine the survey results with Anya Clark, head of Know the Chain and Investor Strategy at the Business and Human Rights Resource Center. Multiple crises over the past couple of years have made it tougher to monitor forced labor in multi-tier supply chains, she says, but that's no excuse. How can manufacturers, brands, retailers, investors, and consumers do better? Here's my conversation with Anya Clark. Anya Clark, welcome to the show. Hi, Bob. Thanks so much for having me. I especially appreciate your being with me. It's been five years since we've had Know the Chain on the podcast, if you can believe that. So it's great to have you back or great to have Know the Chain back to talk about your latest 2023 apparel and footwear benchmark report. Although I'm not sure how much good news you have to tell me <laughs> that's developed in those ensuing five years. But uh, let's see where this goes and, and, and learn a little bit about what's in the report. So the 2023 report where do you obtain your data? So the data is obtained uh, primarily from companies' publicly available information, so ESG reports, annual reports, proxy statements, and any other information that's publicly available on their website. In conjunction with that, we incorporate allegations of abuse from reputable third-party sources. So these could be reputable media reports, but also academic reports and, and the like. Mm -hmm. So that dual function kind of mitigates the reliance on company self-reporting. We also get an additional information from companies during the research period. So that could be flagging reports that we've missed or indeed newly published information or information that will be published during the research period. I see. You say it mitigates the need for self-reporting. Is there any self-reporting involved at all? Is there any direct communication from the companies to you in response to requests that you have for them? Yeah, absolutely. So engagement is with benchmark companies is, is a hugely important part of what we do. It's really vital in building relationships and then 
additionally improving practice ultimately. And so we'll do our initial desktop research on companies' publicly available information. And then we'll send that to the companies to get them to review and feedback on anything that we might have missed or anything that they feel that we've misinterpreted. So that is a key part. And obviously, they they do get a chance to report or review uh, the findings before the report comes out as well. Am I right in thinking that the last report was 2021, two years prior? That's right. Yeah, yeah. So the the benchmarking cycle happens on a two-yearly basis. And so we will alternate between the apparent footwear benchmark, ICT, and the food and beverage benchmark. Those are the three high-risk sectors that we cover. Yeah. And again, we are speaking about apparel and footwear specifically today. Did you revise your methodology this time over the last one in any way? Yeah. I mean, it's really important for us to keep up to date with both stakeholder expectations, including civil society organizations, the labor movement and other allies in the space, but also kind of evolving human rights due diligence legislation, which is obviously emerging across Europe and North America. And so in 2022, we took on the most substantive review of our methodology to focus on how companies were implementing their public policies on forced labour and human rights issues and the outcomes or the effects of those policies on workers in the supply chain. And so we've overweighted indicators that are associated with that impact or outcomes data and underweighted those that ask for disclosure around policies per se. And just to structure the scoring and the like, I believe you built it around seven major themes. Is that correct? That's correct. So seven themes broadly aligned with the UN guiding principles for business and and human rights. The seven themes incorporate both the management of human rights issues within the supply chains, the practical due diligence elements that are involved in, in identifying and assessing risks, and then the third pillar of the UN guiding principles, which is remedy and asking companies to provide or disclose examples of where they have provided remedy for human rights violations within the supply chain. It looks like, uh, looking over this report, that non-disclosure was an issue. When a benchmark company discloses no relevant supplier or sourcing data, does that happen? Is that common? And and what then? Yeah, so in about 42% of cases, companies didn't disclose relevant supplier or, or sourcing data, which is Uh, Very concerning in a sector that has long been in the media spotlight for human rights abuses within its supply chains. And so that ability or the lack of ability, rather, for companies to know and show their risks in this regard is is concerning and, and shows that there has been not a lot of progress or not as much progress as we would have liked to see. However, I would just add that in general, more generally speaking, there is growing supply chain transparency from the companies that we assessed. And since 2021, 10 companies disclosed more information on their first tier suppliers, um, either publishing full first tier supplier lists for the first time or improving their existing disclosure. And so despite the majority of companies falling short on full supply chain transparency, we can see improvement in that first tier and even down to second and third tier for a lot of companies that we benchmark. Well, that's some good news, although maybe you say the majority of companies is putting it mildly. More than one in five scored five out of the maximum hundred. And the highest score, Lululemon, 
was a 63 out of 100, which in a normal testing environment on a scale of 0 to 100, that would be a C. And yet this is the best. doesn't sound great. How does that compare with two years ago? Yeah, so, I mean, the the methodology does make it more difficult for uh, companies to obtain very high scores. It seeks to really measure what companies are doing in practice. Yet we have noticed a drop in scores almost across the board, which is probably more reflective of, as I said, what, what companies are doing on these issues on the ground. But certainly by no means are the highest scoring companies either free of forced labor or labor rights impacts within their supply chains, nor do they not have any room for improvement there. And that's really kind of the key message within the benchmark findings. There is a, a heightened level of risk as a result of multiple geopolitical conflict and, and climate factors, and companies seem reactive to that at this point. So the challenge is greater now in conforming to these compliance standards than it might have been before. That might help to explain why it's worse. You mentioned climate. There are a number of factors that I I take it that one of the big factors driving forced labor these days is worker displacement. Climate, indeed, is one source and reason for worker displacement, is it not? And, And what might be other reasons that cause workers to be displaced and find themselves in foreign environments in which they have no power over their employer or their lives, for that matter? Yeah, I mean, that's a great point, I think. And it's really where climate and social issues uh, or environmental and social issues really come into play in the issues around forced displacement and labour migration as a result of the climate crisis. The kind of key linkage here is that people who are forcibly displaced from their homes, who are in more desperate situations to make ends meet, will inevitably accept exploitative working conditions and labor practices to do that. And so that is being exacerbated by the climate crisis, which is causing increased flooding in places, droughts in others, and also exacerbating the working conditions in those places where climate factors are more of an issue. So workers suffering from heat stress in places where it's getting hotter. So that is 100% a factor. We know that migrant workers as well suffer along the spectrum of labour rights abuse from discrimination to document withholding to debt bondage, which leads to then uh, conditions of forced labour. So they are, are at heightened risk. Um, another factor within that exacerbates the displacement of people is, of course, conflict. Um, and we know in the last five years that interstate conflict has increased quite dramatically. And that is in turn increasing the desperation of people, the movement of people. Like if we look at, for example, Syria, Syrian refugees in, in the Turkish garment sector and the heightened risks that they are at, we can see those kind of patterns emerging in different places. Um, And then finally, I think economic turbulence and the cost of living crisis also worsening people's living standards, forcing them to accept work in deplorable conditions, um, just again, to, to make ends meet and to make their livelihood. So these kind of factors all contribute to the heightened risk that workers are facing in very many countries that are vital to the sourcing of garment supply chains. 
One of the key findings in the report is that companies seem ill-prepared for existing and upcoming legislation. Well, certainly not for lack of promotion or knowledge about that legislation. I'd be very surprised to hear that they didn't know about it because it's in the news so much, especially the Uyghur situation. So what's that all about? Is that just that the investors don't care, the public, the consumers don't care, the executives don't care? How is it they're so ignorant or, for that matter, in the words of the report, ill-prepared for this uh, regulation and legislation? I mean, that's a good question. I think there are kind of two sides to it. So some of the more robust human rights due diligence legislation like that of the EU is slowly beginning to emerge. And so what you have is companies not really understanding or knowing what the content of that will be so that they can kind of adapt their practices accordingly. But then you have other legislation like the Uyghur Force Labour Prevention Act, and, and that does seem to be having a tangible impact on companies' sourcing practices and their ability and, and willingness to conduct human rights due diligence along their supply chains. So I would say there's enough of a, of a stick within that legislation to be making companies aware and, and take action on this. But I think for most companies, the burden of proof is so high for many of these cases, particularly in terms of, of forced labour, that strategic litigation cases, which are increasing, but are still very difficult to, to raise for anybody who suffered violations of human rights abuse, it's still not enough to incentivize companies to mitigate that kind of legal or human rights risk. So I think what we will see as due diligence legislation emerges and is enforced across Europe and the global north, we will see an increase in that litigation and hopefully that will be enough to change companies' practice. But it seems at the moment it's still worth the risk for companies to be externalizing their human rights issues and costs um, because that enforcement of, of the legislation is, is still not there. Well, it may also be an issue of we, the consumers of these products, don't have enough information. I mean, if we buy a garment and it says made in China, we don't know where in China it was made. There doesn't mm -hmm. seem to be any really good, robust system for informing consumers exactly not just what country, but what part of a country something was made. Mm -hmm. We seem to be a long way away from that, do we not? Yeah, absolutely. Companies can not only obfuscate where their products are coming from, but very consciously kind of manipulate or I guess in the sense of greenwashing, we have that with the sustainability issues more generally. So I think yeah, it's not even a case of if you were to look very closely and scrutinize everything as a consumer that you would be able to find these things. It is the case that sometimes marketing spiel can be really deliberately misleading, I think. Mm -hmm. And legislation is coming down the line that will eventually make that illegal and not worth the risk for companies either. Consumers should probably act on the basic premise that if a garment is being sold for, I don't know, five pounds or five or five dollars in, in a shop, really think about how it's possible to produce a garment for that mm -hmm. price owing to the supply chain and the work involved in making it. It would be almost impossible to uphold labor standards at the price yeah. that some of them are if you think about fast fashion industry. And so somewhere along that chain, employment rights and, and labor standards have to give in order for the garment to be produced in that way. So I think I'm not, I'm not saying that the higher the price, the more sustainable the garment. That's not always the case either. But for consumers to understand that cheap products can be produced 
with forced labor or labor exploitation. Yeah, but even that being the case, there's a certain amount of irony attached to the poor performance of some luxury brands in your report. Mm. In that case, the more expensive items were worse in terms of sustainability and, and treatment of workers. So, I mean, I don't mm. want to sound naive in, in calling that ironic. I suppose that there's no surprise because that's been uh, publicized for years and years. But what's going on there in terms of luxury brands' refusal to compensate their workers for products for which there's quite a high margin of profitability? I would say probably not all luxury companies, but I think that the, certainly the majority of the ones that we track, just going back to the methodology for the benchmark, we interrogate whether companies have a framework to identify, mitigate and address forced labour risk as they arise. And the disclosure of luxury companies, because I think because of the fact that they've been out of the media spotlight and haven't received as much scrutiny as, as other sectors, including the fast fashion sector in the last number of years, they haven't felt the need to disclose the same level of information about how they're approaching these issues as, as other companies. And of course, there can be a lot that goes on behind the scenes. But in terms of accountability to various different stakeholders, the publicly available disclosure of companies is all we have to go on in terms of how they're approaching these issues. And so the luxury companies are not demonstrating that they have these robust frameworks in place, including like board oversight of policies that address forced labor issues within the supply chain, really robust stakeholder engagement along the supply chain, including through their risk assessment process, and then disclosing risks that they have identified as a result of those risk assessments. So 100% they have a long way to go in terms of showing that they're really taking action on these issues. What about investors? What key recommendations would you make to them to heighten their awareness and make them care more about what the companies are doing and which they're investing? Yeah, I would say there's a lot of evidence and research that has been conducted over the past number of years that demonstrates the link between mitigating human rights abuse and, and being proactive in addressing human rights and forced labor issues along their supply chains and that company's resiliency, its potential for long-term financial growth and profitability, and also the mitigation of reputational risks, legal risks, and, and operational risks resulting from protests and strikes and different kind of worker action along the supply chain. And so to really investigate those issues within the companies that they're invested in and to actively engage with them on forced labor and human rights risks and how companies are addressing them and, and look to best practice from civil society organizations and, and trade unions to understand what the company is doing in practice. Um, the next stage of engagement, I, I feel, is being ready to kind of take action when a company is not making progress on that. And that could be in raising shareholder resolutions on human rights due diligence or voting against directors, perhaps, for lack of action on these issues. And then, obviously, divestment is, is a tool of last resort, but can be used to really show companies that the investor is, is committed to proved practice on this. So engagement and, and then escalation when necessary. Anya Clark of Know the Chain, oh, thank you so much for coming on the show to tell us about the results of the 2023 Apparel and Footwear Benchmark Report, as well as some advice as to what companies and investors, and for that matter, consumers can do in order to reduce and eliminate the scourge of forced labor and human slavery around the world. Thanks so much for being with me today. Thanks so much.
That was my conversation with Anya Clark of Know the Chain, talking about forced labor in global supply chains. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast or streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read our Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn. Follow us on Twitter or X, at SCBrain. And also watch videos on our YouTube channel. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. Stay well and see you next time.